Welcome, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. This is Brother Jimmy Fortunato, and you're listening to a sermon from the Pilgrim Baptist Church in Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us on the web at pilgrimbaptist.church. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, right? Is that where you guys are at? For the wrath of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Sorry. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Why? Verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. All right, let's pray. Father God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for giving us truth that we can find. We ask Your blessing upon this message. In Jesus Christ's name, Amen. We're going to talk about public evangelism and witnessing today. And everybody, God declares his truth in his word. And there is a time and a place for evidentialism. And there's great books written that the evidence for Christ and and all of that, where I've gleaned a lot of good truth from, and I'm sure you've read, um, you know, Lee Strobel's books are great books. And he gives the evidence for a creator, the evidence for Christ. And there is a time and a place for that. But there's equally a time and a place for God declares who he is. And every man knows that there's a God. And one of the problems that you run into with evidentialism, not that evidentialism is a problem, but one of the problems you run into is that the believer, the Christian, can easily be the one that is put on trial And then therefore, God is the one that is put on trial. So we need to find a balance when we're talking to a lost person that we are not allowing him to just put God on trial for 20 minutes. Well, what about this? And what about that? And what about that? Because as soon as you answer his one question with evidentialism, he's right back to another question. That's why the Bible says, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And so I start with the premise that you do know there's a God. And how do you know things? How can you know anything without God? And I start to put that person on trial instead of allowing him to put my God on trial. And then he just completely controls the situation. And when you look at Romans 1.18, you know what they do? They hold the truth. Some say suppress, that's to overpower, it can mean to crush, it can mean to destroy, and no one can destroy the truth. Heaven and earth shall pass away, my words shall not pass away. You can't get rid of God's truth. And a lost person can't either. It can also mean to keep in, but we know the Bible says the word is nigh thee even in thy mouth. We've all heard people say, God damn it. 
And we've all heard people say these other things. The word is nigh thee. So they don't suppress the truth. They hold it. They do right in their hand. They hold it right in their being. You know what the Bible says? It's all in unrighteousness. They're just unrighteous sinners. And verse 19 explains, because that which may be known of God. God's given every man enough light to know who he is. God's given creation. Any man, the heathen in any third world country can look up and know that there is a God. That which may be known of God, it is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. Everybody knows that there's a God. They hold the truth in unrighteousness. The end of verse 20, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. I asked an atheist, and the last time I got to use this was on a, an atheist at the library two months ago or a month and a half ago. Would you say that it would be impossible, a total impossibility, or would you say it would be possible that God could reveal things to me in such a way that I can know them for certain? Is that impossible or possible? Either way he answers, he has to make a truth statement. He has to make an absolute truth statement. And 99.9% .9 of the time, they will say, I couldn't say that that is impossible. Because they ultimately take the position they can't really know anything for certain. So they say, well, well I would grant you that, yeah, that would be, that would be possible. I said, sir, that is my path to certainty. Now I would like to get to your path of certainty. And you will find as the conversation goes on, and we'll do a couple of lessons on this in, in, in the months to come, is that they will be caught in the, the circle of uncertainty where they can't know A, because they need to know B. And they can't know B because they need to know C. And it goes on and on and on. And what that's called in reasoning is the um, infinite regress. You can't ever know anything for sure. And then I say to that person, but you do know things. How can you know anything without God? I have a path to certainty, you don't. And Romans 1 gives a great, ver gives great scripture for us as Christians to understand that they do know God. They don't want to glorify Him as, as God. And it goes right on. They're not thankful. They're vain in their imaginations. Their foolish heart was darkened. And what do they do? 
they professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God unto an image made like to corruptible men and to birds and four-foot beasts, and it goes on. And God's just going to give them up. God's given man truth. Man takes that truth. They hold it in unrighteousness. It starts to unfold, and God says, okay. Verse 24, wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. And that is exactly where we were Saturday afternoon, downtown on the sidewalk on Jefferson, holding scripture signs, and people hate God. Why do they hate God? Because they hold the truth in complete unrighteousness. Why is it that you're for everything else except biblical Christianity and the true God of the Bible? Why does that rile you up so much? If you don't drink alcohol, how come the Budweiser advertisements don't rile you up so much? Because they don't hate alcohol as much as they hate God. And that's where we're at, especially with this LBGT and all of this queer agenda that's going on. And we read some stuff, I'm sure you have too. It is a calculated attack. It's well thought out. And they put right in print to teach kids a queer agenda. And nothing's going to change until that person trusts Christ as their Savior. And we are up against it. Because a lot of the preachers in their 60s and in their 70s and the retired ones in their 80s all grew up in a generation where they knocked on the door, somebody was a Pentecostal, they argued doctrine. Somebody was Church of Christ, they argued baptism. Somebody was a Roman Catholic, they argued work salvation. But everybody started from the starting point that there was a God. <laughs> and the preachers in their 60s, 70s, and the retired ones in their 80s and 90s are getting caught up to speed now with, you fellas got it rough because we never had to deal with that. They didn't. But we do. The preachers in their 30s and the preachers in their 40s and the preachers in their 50s are all dealing with this for real. Like that's our real culture. And then our kids are going to have, have the same. All right, 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, and let's start in verse number 11. And the Bible says, Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. We're not out to try to do evil but good. We have the good news and we have a gospel of peace. That's the only way people have peace in their heart. And then the Bible says, For the eyes of the Lord, verse number 12, are over the righteous, and His ears are open unto their prayers. We should pray, 
before we open our mouth to anybody about the Lord, whether it's silently or whether it's corporately as a church, if Pilgrim Baptist Church knows that some are going out for some public evangelism, and if it's a, if it's a weekly thing, if it's a Friday at 4.30 downtown thing, we should commit to at least you know a minute or two or three or five. Let's just pray real quick that whoever gets a track, whoever reads a sign, God touches their heart. We should pray. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. God's on our side. He's against evil. We should be against evil. And verse 13, And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. How does that happen? You know, people say, I don't want to witness. It's confrontational. We go to Walmart and we give people pieces of, I was going to say paper, but now we give people, people pieces of plastic to pay for stuff. But we're used to giving people pieces of stuff, pieces of paper and pieces of plastic. But when we have to whip out a gospel track and say, hey, can I give you something to read in your break time? We get nervous. We get afraid. We get whatever. And, and I've been there as much as you've been there. Because we're afraid that somehow we're going to suffer for righteousness' sake. But the Bible says, happy are ye. Because that teller or that person, the worst they can do is punch you in the mouth. The worst they can do legally is tell you off. <laughs> That's the biggest persecution that you're going to get. So be happy about that. Happy are ye. It's for righteousness' sake. You don't have to worry about not having joy in your heart because everybody that I've talked to that has gone out and witnessed or gave a gospel tract to somebody for the first time, afterwards, they always have a joyful report. Man, preacher, I didn't think I could do that, but boy, I'm so glad that I did it. I'm so glad I went out and tried it. Why? Why are they happy? It's just something about doing something for the Lord. Happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. And then God gives us a qualification before we give an answer. And let's look at that in verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And then you see that semicolon, which groups this together with, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Before you and I talk to somebody about the Lord, it's very important that we do the beginning of verse 15. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Because if you're anything like me, people get on your nerves. And when somebody wants to make fun of God or somebody wants to make fun of Jesus Christ or somebody wants to make fun of Christianity, part of me wants to tell them off. Part of me wants to be like, you're stupid, you're dumb, you're... And I will be there if I don't obey the other parts of the Bible that are in there that say, you better sanctify the Lord God in your heart or it's going to all be a flesh fest. And what, do, what are Christians good at? Well, look, I was doing it for the Lord. 
You were doing parts of it for the Lord. <laughs> you were. But there was another part that you got to get right with the Lord for. And we're real good on praising ourselves for the stuff that we do. And that's why, and, and I don't know if you have seen this, but I have seen it. There are a stripe of open air preachers and it just seems to me that they are so worn out from talking to ungodly, vile God-haters that they have just become mean themselves. God hates sin. Should we hate sin? We should. When your child sins, should you hate the fact that they sinned and should you hate that sin? You should. But good night. You... What about God's love? <laughs> What about meekness? What about fearing God? What about... We can't divorce those things when we're talking to a lost person. And so, you've got to be able to sanctify God in your hearts or it's always going to be, homos are going to hell and queers are of the devil. And, you... and all those things are true, but the hard attitude that comes across is not a tear in your heart that that person would trust Christ and be saved. It's... I'm kind of happy about it. <laughs> I'm happy you're going there. And we just need to be careful because there's a subtle difference. And verse 15 is very, very important. Before you give the answer, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Boy, I wish I knew that 20 years ago when I got married. That would have saved a lot of arguing. <laughs> but I know it now. <laughs> We do that. We do. We just, all right, having a good conscience. That last semicolon to end of 15. That whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ, period. And that's a Beautiful, one long, three-verse sentence that ends right there. Sanctify Lord first. It's connected to, before you give that answer, do that. And then as you give your answer with hope, with meekness and in fear, look, it's connected to, you have a good conscience and they can't speak evil of you. You're not ashamed. They may be ashamed of their false accusation. They don't get saved. You know what? They should walk away thinking, They were ashamed. That they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. All right, Romans 10, because we want to pray, right? Romans 10 will be somewhere around verse 10, 11, or 12, but you can't pray people into the kingdom of God. And we have to be careful, especially with little ones, that we don't tell them that they're saved when there's been no... We just got to be careful because they want to do what mom and dad say. I mean, up to at least age 10, they want to please mom and dad. So we need to be careful that we don't use that to their spiritual detriment. 
Um, we can't pray anybody in, but we should pray that they get in. The same way is we can't all sit at home and just pray that people get saved because as we see in Romans chapter 10, let's start at verse 11. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on Him shall not be ashamed, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How? God's asking this rhetorical question here. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? You can't pray Him in. And how shall they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? They haven't heard anything. And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. And bring glad tidings of good things. No one's going to believe unless they hear. No one's going to hear unless a preacher is sent. And God says, those are some beautiful feet. Christian soldiers marching out to bring the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. We have got to go. Corporately, we have to go as a church. Individually, we have to go as Christians. The church shouldn't say, it's the preacher's job. The preacher shouldn't say, it's your job. The church should say, we're the body of Christ. We're the local church in this town. We should go. Because somebody's going to work tomorrow and they've got a lost co-worker and God's going to put them right there at the lunch break table with you. <laughs> and you can talk about who won the Super Bowl, which is fine, but not at the expense of somehow weaving in. Do you got two minutes? Can I just tell you about what Jesus Christ did for me? <laughs> or however the Lord leads. And somebody else is in another situation and they have a sphere of influence that I can't get into, but you can. And we've got to bring that good news in an appropriate way based on the environment that we're at. Mark chapter 16. All right, Mark 16, familiar passage of Scripture. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. There's a lot in this verse. We're not going to preach on it, but you can't go into all the world until you've yet gone into your home and then your neighborhood and then your town and then your state. You've got to start somewhere. You can easily read that verse, Mark 16, 15, and say, I'll never be able to go into all the world. No. But you can tell one person that you meet tomorrow 
Start with that. And preach against the government. That's not what it says. And preach against sodomites and queers. That's not what it says either. Hmm. How about the gospel? (laughs) Isn't that what the Bible says? Preach the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Trusting in what He did. Nothing on your merit. All on His merit. Repenting of whatever it is that you're trusting in. And putting your full faith and trust in what Jesus Christ did for you. That's the gospel. And then the Bible says to every creature. You've got the uh, doctrine of creation right there. A creature is a created being. And so we're, we're to go out to all of God's created beings, every creature, and we are to preach the gospel. I can't do everybody. But if you do somebody tomorrow, and I talk to somebody on Tuesday, and sister in the back talks to somebody on Wednesday, and some Christians over on the other side of the state do that, and some Christians on the other side of the state, you see see what I'm saying? God wants believers as a body to obey this verse. And I think too many times New Testament churches have gotten so knee-deep in Activity, program, pizza party, dating group, youth group, sorry. Um, and, and they get so involved in all of these things that they forget this verse. And people get complacent. They want to come and they want to do activities. But what about the go out activities? What about that being the preeminent thing and having fun with that and then doing some of those other fun things? We've had more fun times going out, especially the Florida-Georgia football game that they play at Jacksonville Stadium. We've had such a fun time going and the last time I went, this guy was wearing me out. And I was preaching and some of the younger fellows were around and I'm trying to get their attention to call them over to help me out. This guy was chest up in my face, beer bottle in hand, letting me have it. (laughs) And do you know how fun it was at the end of that at Chick-fil-A, railing on those young bucks and saying, yo, what are you doing leaving me hanging like that? I thought you had it. You're jujitsu. I thought. I said, we've had more fun times just rehearsing all that God had done after the fact. And it's just a joy to get out there. And now not, that's not an everyday normal thing. But when those things happen, you don't like it when you're in the midst of it because you don't know if the guy's going to hit you with a bottle or not. But after you've come, a, come unscathed, you, you rejoice. And that's how it ought to be. We're having fun. We're having fun, but we've got to obey our great commission.
All right, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 28. The Bible says, uh, Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. We have to warn people when you sound off a siren, the ambulance or the fire department or the police, it's warning the people that are on the road, hey, get out of the way, I'm coming through, there's an emergency. It's a warning siren. Everybody knows on the road, there's an emergency happening, I need to pull over. When we go out, we should sound the warning sign, the warning signal, and let people know there's an emergency. You're on your way to a place that I don't want you to go. And I want to get this good news to you. I've got to warn you. If I didn't warn you, I would be the same as the guy in the fire department just sitting there and the call and the bell goes off and he's just sipping coffee. He has no desire to go. We have got to warn people. And when that fireman is zipping down the road very loud and very obnoxious and getting people out of the way, he arrives to save somebody and to do his job, to do his duty. And as Christians, we are duty-bound to bring this warning to lost men and women across this world. We're duty-bound. We've got to warn. Um, John the Baptist, you could say he's the start of the Baptist church if you're really a hardcore Baptist. Or you could just say that I'm sure there's a John the plumber in Cookville <laughs> and a John the electrician because he does electric. And maybe he's called John the Baptist because he baptized people. <laughs> that could be a reasonable explanation. But he also was the first open-air preacher. And what did he preach? Repentance. And he did it in the wilderness. We see in the Bible, Jesus found himself dealing with multitudes all the time. And there's more preaching to crowds in the Bible than we like to give the Bible credit for. Let's look at three real quick. Matthew chapter 4. And then we'll get Luke 19. And then we'll finish up. Matthew chapter 4. Luke 19. All right, we'll do Matthew 4 first. And all right, verse number 25. Matthew 4, 25. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem, and from Judea, and from Jordan, beyond. Multitudes of people wanted to be around Jesus Christ. And I'm sure he talked to them about a bunch of stuff, but one thing for certain he talked to him was about who he was and what he can offer them. And they wanted to be around him. He was involved with the multitudes. Luke 19 
and Luke 19, and Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who was and could not for the press, because he was of little stature. There's a bunch of people there. There's a multitude there. And he ran before and climbed up into the sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, you know what he's doing? He's in a place where there's people. He looks up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. You know what Jesus did? Before he went one-on-one with Zacchaeus and took him aside one-on-one at his house, he's dealing with multitudes. He's at a place where there's a lot of people. That's why Zacchaeus has to go up in the tree. He deals with the multitude. And then from that, he gets one. And he goes and he talks to them. And that's what we should do. Many times we're out in a crowd and it could be an open air situation that turns into someone walks by, someone offers that person a track, and the next thing you know, there's a five-minute conversation going on about Jesus Christ. We can't be afraid of the multitudes. We can't be afraid of the crowds. People can't get away from the proclamation of the gospel. When you hold a sign and someone's driving by, you're going to get a honk. And when you look over and wave, you're either going to get a thumbs up or you're going to get another finger up. <laughs> right? But they, they saw, they read, ye must be born again. That might have been the only Jesus or gospel they got that whole week or that whole month. You just don't know. But it was proclaimed. What good does it do? I don't know. All I know, every opportunity almost that I've had that God has put in my lap has come from some type of public evangelism and public outreach. God just works. No matter what it is, holding the sign, giving a track out, talking one-on-one. Think of multitudes and crowds and then try to narrow that funnel down to who can I talk to now? And just trust God. And last one. Remember, Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. That should be our, our motive. Last one, Matthew 13. Let's go back there and we're done. Matthew 13. Again, we're going to see Jesus seaside. He's going to be in a boat. He's going to be teaching multitudes that are on the shore. And the Bible says in verse number one, the same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside and great multitudes were gathered together unto him so that he went into a ship and sat and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Now watch. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell on stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. There's your verse for Sunday morning, 
Sunday night and midweek. Some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Dun-dun-dun. Not one of the stronger jokes. But who hath ears to hear, let him hear. So you know what happens? Does Jesus, again, he's addressing a multitude. It's fine. It's okay to go to multitudes. Does he ever say anything about not going to certain ground? He never says anything about it. He says, you sow seed, and it doesn't matter if it's stony ground. It doesn't matter if it's thorny ground. It doesn't matter. Don't look at the ground and say, I don't want to sow seed here. Jesus says, you just start sowing seed. Because eventually, it's going to fall on some good soil, and there's going to be a tender heart, and that tender heart is going to want to trust the Savior. Oh, I don't want to go to that crowd. They're so vile. They'll never. I'm telling you, God says, just sow seed. Jesus said, just sow it. Just sow it. Because one of those bikers or one of those sodomites is going to just slip a track in his back pocket when none of his buddies are looking. He might read that thing and start really thinking and searching. And in two months or two years, the next time he hears it, it might fall on some softer ground now, some good soil. So let's not get focused on, well, that multitude, not good ground. Let's not sow seed there. Just sow it. Just sow it. And then let God work out the results. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I hope it was edifying to your saints. We ask that um, we're able to apply this in a real way this week. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Thanks a bunch for listening. For more information about Pilgrim Baptist Church, be sure to visit us online at pilgrimbaptist.church, where you can also send me a personal message or learn more about joining us for a church service. And remember, Christ is all.